your seats again. Now I'll read to uh, <clears throat> read to us real quickly a, a very familiar verse we hear at Christmas often. Matthew one twenty two. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here he cites Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, you're shopping in Macy's and you hear uh, elevator music playing from the speakers above here in the last week before Christmas. Um, and let's say, though, it's taken, I don't know, it's taken from um, the Upanishads. Or, uh, or the Bhagavad Gita, you know, some type of sacred Hindu text. That's the, the nature of, of the song. And on a scale of, of zero to ten, in terms of weirdness, where, where would that rank? <laughs> you know, right at the very top. And I wonder, um, you know, Christmas in America is a strange cultural moment, isn't it? Even though we're not a Christian society, we have, like, scriptures swirling around um, in our store music. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. I mean, like, what in the world does that mean, Emmanuel? Um, if you're Gen Z, that's probably as foreign to them as the Upanishads would be to you and me. Even, even something as simple or, or as innocuous as, like, prophet or prophecy or Isaiah, I mean, like, what, is, what does that mean? I mean, their point of reference is, is definitely not uh, the Bible, it would probably be closer to, say, the, the Harry Potter universe. Professor uh, Trelawney, you know, the divination professor at Hogwarts, remember, she gives the, the prophecy that ends up, you know, setting in, in the, the course of action, you know, the story. Um, and Voldemort is, has to find it out. And if you remember it in the movie, she goes in, into a trance and she speaks like in this weird demonic voice. That's their point of reference. Like, Isaiah, was it similar? Uh, <laughs> and I think most of our Christmas sermons really don't ever get to that point where we, where we really dig and try to figure out what, what was going on back then. Now, Gray's been preaching through Isaiah at, through the last few weeks, and so I know you guys have been considering the original context of these passages, but I want to do that again. You know, most of the times when we hit Christmas, we, we take things like Isaiah 22 as a, a done deal and this recitation from Isaiah 7. It's like, it's already, um, you know, it's already wrapped together nicely and we rarely consider the origin and the complexity of it. And so that's what I want to do this morning. We'll start looking at the original context of the Emmanuel passage and then I hope we can get to matters of the heart. So three things, the sign of Emmanuel, number one, it's complicated it is complicated. Number two, it's crazy talk. It is. And, and number three, it's, it's very good news. Isaiah 7, 10 through 17. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol. Do we put it up on the screen here? Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Sheol is like an ancient word for the grave. And he's inviting King Ahaz to ask for you know, a sign it, it can be up, I mean, up above or down below, ask for anything. Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And, he, and then Isaiah replies, 
Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And we usually stop there, but verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 700 years before Jesus' birth, the war machine of the Assyrian Empire was threatening to, you know, wipe out everything in its path in the Middle East. You had two countries in the northern area that were going to be hit first. Those two countries were Israel and Aram. They go to a country in the south, Judah, and, and say, hey, let's enter into a military alliance Let's work together you know, to parry off the, the threat. And King Ahaz, in response to this, says, um, no thanks. <laughs> we don't want to get on the Assyrians' bad side. So these two kings, Aram and Israel, come back to him and, and say, all right then, we're going to lay siege to your city. We're going to lay siege to Jerusalem. We're going to you know, assassinate you, knock you off, and we'll put our own guy onto the throne like a puppet regime, and, um, and then we'll see how things go. I mean, they had, to, they had to be feeling very much like I, what I can imagine, you know, Taiwan feels right now with um, China or what the Ukraine feels right now with Russia. You have this massive military force and then smaller military forces who are, who are threatening you. And so Isaiah 7, um, the context, it occurs during a time of just intense national fear when everyone in Judah is, is freaking out, including Ahaz, and wondering, like, who do we trust, and uh, how should we align ourselves, and all this political intrigue, and I'm sure there were rumors and conspiracy theories and, and all of that. The people were, are, it says at one point, I think you preached it, like, they, they were dwelling in the shadow of death. They, they were dwelling in this deep darkness. I mean, that's powerful um, language, isn't it? They felt you know, death breathing down their necks. Enter Isaiah, he comes with encouragement to this faithless king when he says, ask for a sign of the Lord your God. This is going to be a sign of encouragement. Uh, the king replies, um, well, I would never do that. I would never put the Lord my God to the test, which is basically his way of saying, I don't want to hear what you have to say. So Isaiah is upset. He says, I will give you a sign. And, and here is the, the, literally in the Hebrew, he says, an Alma, A-L-M-A-H, and Alma shall bear uh, a child. Alma is the Hebrew word that refers to a young woman, um, usually unmarried, not always unmarried, normally a virgin, not always a virgin. And Alma will give birth to a son. And if you have your, if you want to look at your bulletin here, verses 15 and 16, the son is described to us in these terms. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, Aram and Israel, will be deserted. Curds and honey, um, that, that's the kind of the, the, highlighted, uh, the highlighted words. Are curds and honey peacetime food or wartime food? What do you think? It's, that's peacetime food. 
Dairy and nectar, those are not the types of foods that you would normally eat during a siege. And so this is the word of encouragement that Isaiah brings to the king. By the time this boy is, verse 16, old enough to know good from evil, right from, wrong from right, that type of thing, you say, how long does that take? Um, if you're a parent, it sometimes feels like it takes 30 years. <laughs> but in reality, uh, probably age two or age three, before, by the time this child knows wrong from right, he will be eating like honeycomb yogurt because the siege will be over and there will be peace. Now, Alma, it, it can mean virgin, but when you look at the original context, it seems like what's more likely going to happen is just that a, a young woman is going to give birth to a son. And uh, there have been different candidates proposed. Some say maybe it was Isaiah's wife. Some say maybe it was some other person known in, in the royal household. But this person will just give birth to a son. And once that son is two, then, you know, that's what happens. Um, but you might, you know, push back against me. So, well, Brad, but this son is going to be named something special. It's going to be named Emmanuel. Uh, and uh, from that, I wish I could, I had a whiteboard, but it's uh, M-I-M, uh, that is with, manu, us, L. What does L mean in the Bible? It means God. Literally, with us, God. There are a lot of people who have the name El uh, embedded in their Hebrew name in the Old Testament, right? Like Daniel, Daniel, um, God is my judge. Does that mean that the man who is named Daniel is actually like God in flesh as the judge of the universe here? No, right? It's telling us something about God and, and about um, the way that God will work. Another example of this would be the name of uh, the high priest in the Old Testament, Eli, L-I, right? That means my God. Is the high priest actually God? No, there are dozens of names like that, that the name is supposed to tell you something about God and what God will do. So seen in this light, naming the child Emmanuel means that, that God is with Ahaz and the people, so they have nothing to fear. The, the child's birth is a sign that the attack from these two nations is not going to prevail, that peace is near, and that you know, everything is going to, everything's going to be all right. <laughs> At least that's one of the interpretations. Um, if that's the case, and if you're still following me, why does Matthew cite this passage then for Jesus? And the best way I could describe it is like this. How many gamers are, are, are out there here? Oh, this is not a gaming group. <laughs> all right, how many of you who are not gamers, but you've heard of the term Easter egg before? Yes, okay, so an Easter egg for the uninitiated is basically a secret message or feature that has been programmed into a game that you can discover. How many of you have seen the movie, the Spielberg flick, Ready Player One? Easter eggs, yeah, Easter eggs play a very prominent role in that movie. In fact, it, it, if I'm not mistaken, it actually has the very first Easter egg that was ever, um, it was a, the Atari 2600, it was the game Adventure. The programmer, Warren Robinette, he was frustrated that back in the 80s, they would not allow video game programmers to have their names in the credits. And he thought, like, that's not fair. Like, somebody who writes a book gets to have a title page, and they're acknowledged as the author. So what he did is 
he embedded a secret room in the game where if you're moving around your little pixel, you can find this room. And inside, it says, written by, in very 80s script, written by Warren um, Robinette. And that was considered like the first known Easter egg. The best way to put it, what if God, what if God hid Easter eggs all throughout human history and really all throughout the Bible that were to be discovered? That's essentially what the Jewish people believed was that, you know, that there were Easter eggs that could be discovered that God had placed there. Um, you know, Matthew had already been with Jesus for three years. He'd either heard or experienced things that he just simply could not, could not explain. He had, either, he had heard about Mary, virgin birth. He had heard about shepherds and, and angels, and he had seen miracles. He had seen people risen from the dead. He had seen, he had seen lepers have their skin put, um, become you know, baby soft. He, he had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And so when he goes to, to write what we call a gospel, a historical account of what just took place. He uh, realist, understandably goes back to the Old Testament, to his scriptures, wondering, is there anything in the Old Testament that could help me understand what I just went through, what I just experienced? And this, so here's one other very important um, point. The Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but at some, at some moment in history, I can't remember when it was, there were purported 70 rabbis who translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. That became, of all of the ancient Bible translations, that was the Bible translation that the whole world read consistently. And you know whether or not it was 70, I'm sure it wasn't 70 rabbis, but they took the best of the best. This became the known Bible translation. This is the Bible translation, if you will, that Matthew is reading from. When the rabbis go and translate the word Alma, and it's not important that you remember the, the details, but just the concept. When they translate the word Alma, they translate it to the Greek Parthenos, and Parthenos always means a virgin. And so it goes, a Parthenos shall give birth to a child. And so can you just imagine it for a minute with me? Matthew is reading through this Greek translation, this Greek Isaiah scroll, and he comes to these words, a Parthenos shall conceive and bear a child, and we will call his name Emmanuel. And I just, like he had to freak out. You know, Middle Eastern people are, are much more expressive than we are, like Anglo's in America, like, he had to just be, like, trembling. It, it would be the equivalent of, of, like, we all hope, don't we all hope one day there's going to be some scientist who's looking at his computer screen and some genetic genome coding is going to come up and he's going he's gonna to see it for the first time. That is the cure for cancer. And what does that guy do at that moment? He, he freaks out. And if you can just imagine a Matthew, a Parthenos, and... And the way that they worshipped, I mean, they didn't sit in pews, you know. They either stood up during the services or they literally, they would get down and put their head to the ground and they would prostrate themselves. Can you, as I get hooked on the music stand, can you imagine like what that meant to him? And when we read it today, it doesn't quite have that same effect on us, does it? 
One of the great theologians of, uh, of uh, you know, the 21st century, Grover from Sesame Street, <laughs> in, in one of the Sesame Street episodes, you know, Grover's always trying to teach kids new words, and so he, he runs up to the camera, and he puts his face right in the camera, he got this big blue face, and he says, near, <laughs> and then he runs back a few feet, and he says, far, near, far. And that, of course, is how the Easter eggs that God placed worked. Um, The near in Isaiah's day was a time of national crisis with a faithless king and a people who felt like they were literally dwelling in the shadow of death. A child is born to someone they knew to be an Alma, which predicts the end of the the siege. Uh, I'll cheat a little bit and I'll say the middle... The middle is this strange retranslation of the Old Testament that substitutes Parthenos for uh, Alma, that God in his writing of history brought to pass. And then the far for them was, of course, it's the very thing that we celebrate this, uh, this coming Saturday, that lo and behold, this child that was born is is God in the flesh. He is God with us. And so why have I, why have I gone to such length to uh, tell you this? Is it like a history lesson? It's complicated, right? It's complicated. And, it, and I wanted to tell it to you because God's ways are not always simple. Like God works in, in the complicated, in, in, in all of the weird mess of things. And I think sometimes what we do, maybe in our zeal to get our message across, is we inadvertently oversimplify either the Bible or, or maybe the emotional complexities of being a Christian, right? Or, um, or, or we, like, we have this subculture of Christianity where we'll talk about like, oh, God's in this, and God, you know, I, oh, God's with this or not with this. And, do you know what I mean? And it, it's kind of like a superficial, there's a really we think we can just like draw really clear one-to-one correlations between God's in this and he's not in this. And, and reality is, it's complicated. Life is complicated. And the difficulties of this life are, are, are complicated. And it's just good to know that when God was coming into the, in, uh, into the world, he, he operated in the complicated. Now, that's a great comfort to me. And I hope to you. So it's complicated. Number two, it's, it's crazy talk. The sign of Emmanuel um, is crazy talk. I would one day, I'll never write a book. I would love to write a book, but I'm not a good enough writer and I'm not smart enough. But if I were to write a book, I think the title of that book would be, it might be, Doing Theology After the Hubble Telescope, a post-Hubble Theology. Uh, or even that is kind of dated, because you know what's so cool? Have, has anybody seen the James Webb Space Telescope? Is, they're launching it early next year, $10 billion. It makes the Hubble Telescope look like you know, child's play. It's, it's going to be amazing. When I preached the sermon a few weeks ago at New Valley Chandler, and I spoke about the Hubble, my freshman in high school, she's like, Dad, I don't, I don't know what the Hubble is. So if you don't know what the Hubble is, it is it's orbiting the Earth right now, and it's looking out in the, the far distances of the, of the universe. And I mean, how many of you have seen pictures from the Hubble before? I mean, they're incredible, right? Every year, the Hubble uh, looks at our solar system, and it looks at the gas giants in our solar system. 
it compares the weather patterns from one year to the next. So you can really, you can do Jupiter in 2020 and Jupiter in 2021, and you actually see the ways the storms on the, on the face of Jupiter change. You can see Uranus in 2020, and Uranus in 2021 is really cool because the, the top northern hemisphere of Uranus is, is glowing. It's literally like massively glowing because wherever it is, and I'm no um, astronomer, but wherever it is and it's, uh, you know, uh, what do you call that? Orbit, whatever. <laughs> uh, it's getting more UV radiation. And so the, the top of the um, planet is, is starting to glow. What amazes me about Hubble is, it, is it's looking into a place where we don't, we don't measure distances up there by miles, do we? or by kilometers, how do we measure distances? By light years. <laughs> like, just try to get your head around that for, for a second. We measured the universe by how fast the speed of life tra light travels. Um, if, you were, if you were to travel at the speed of light for, okay, let's try this, 1,001, 1,002, that was a second. One second, one second. You could go from Los Angeles to New York City and back 37 times. One second. That's how, we, that's how fast it moves. The nearest star in our galaxy, other than the sun, is 4.25 light years away. That is 135 million trips between LA and New York, there and back. Does anybody have any idea how large the universe is? The universe is, is, is this, is what we, this is what they say, 93 billion light years across. There's so many zeros in that. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. 93 billion light years across. There are two trillion galaxies in the universe, and each one contains hundreds of billions of stars. And like, really? And, and that is who is with us. Like, I, I, I can hardly, I don't even know, I don't even have words to describe like, what that means. That is the God, and so we're going to riff off of this, God with us. That is the God who, who, who spoke in 93 billion light years he made. God, and, and what? Did we talk about this last time I preached? I mean, it's, it feels like such an unsatisfactory word. It's three letters. It's a single syllable. It's from the German Gott, G-O-T-T, four letters. You would, think, you would think that if we were going to talk about this divine being, that there would at least be 15 syllables in the word, because God is just, it, it just hardly does anything. And when I use the word God on my lips, I promise you, I'm not thinking about somebody who said, let there be light, boom, 93 billion light years. That is not what I'm thinking of. Uh, but that is the God who is with us. You know, up until the moment that Jesus shows up in the scene in the Old Testament, whenever the presence of God came near to people in the Old Testament, you know, he usually looks terrifying, which is kind of what I would expect for a God who could do that. I mean, when he appears to Job, what is he like? He, it says that he's, he's like a, 
a hurricane, a whirlwind, is how he appears to Job. When he appears to Moses, the, there's this you know, pillar of fire. When he appears to Abraham, it says there's this nighttime smoking pot that hovers through the air. I mean, it's, I don't know. It had to be just an, an intense heat, an incredible blaze. And every time that God had ever shown up, he was this, this terrifying figure. Why do you think that when God showed up in Jesus Christ, he was not a pillar of fire, he was a baby? I mean, there's nothing like a baby. There's nothing like a baby. I mean, a baby you can pick up and hold. And once your kids get past the ages of, I don't know, three or four, you don't get to pick them up very much anymore because they have their own agenda. <laughs> but a baby can't, can't stop you. A baby is the most intimate and familiar form of human existence. You can hold them. You can kiss them. They're completely soft. They're, they're completely vulnerable, right? And so I, I think when we... When we talk about Christmas, like, there really should be some level of cognitive dissonance that's going on inside of us, right? If we're really talking about Christmas, if we're really talking about that God <laughs> coming to be in this form, <laughs> just the insanity of it all, that a God who made such a universe, choosing to enter the womb of a young woman, a virgin, to be born, to be vulnerable, and all that represents only when we are trying to wrap our minds around it are we, are we beginning maybe to, to do justice to Christmas. Um, you know, in the first few centuries of the church, there was a group of false teachers who maintained that there was simply no way that Jesus Christ could be God in the flesh. They said, no, not, not a chance. Like, Jesus must be some sort of ancient hologram. He was a hologram or or he was, I don't know, a projection of God or some kind of illusion. illusion. They, they denied that he, had, he could have any bodily form. And I have some sympathy for them. I mean, you should too. Like, no God, no perfect, pure, eternal spirit could ever put on cloth diapers and soil himself daily. Like, that's crazy talk. It is no God could, would, no, no God could debase himself in that way. And, they, and particularly, you know, they, they had real big hang-ups on the human body. I mean, the body's dirty, and bodily fluids are dirty, and, you know, and the spirit is great. And so it made no sense to them. Um, it, makes no, it should make little sense to us <laughs> if we're thinking about it. Have you ever noticed, those of you who have had kids before, when you go to pick up your child, maybe they're sleeping in their crib, sometimes as you put your hands underneath them, they will startle, and they'll do a funny kind of startle motion. They'll go, <laughs> ever noticed that before? It's a, it's a fall reflex. Do you know that's what's happening? Is they feel, like they're, they feel like they're in free fall at that moment. They feel like they're following. It's because their central nervous system is not developed. Sometimes they'll hit that fall reflex when they hear a loud noise in another room. They just, you know, they feel like they're falling. Yeah, the God who created 93 billion light years 
didn't have a central nervous system that was fully developed until it slowly was. Uh, this great God, with all of his majesty, has put himself into a form of with us that, that is touchable, that is huggable, that is, that is not a tornado, that is not a hurricane, um, that is not a pillar of fire that would you know, burn your, the skin off your hands. But it's a baby. And I tell you one of the reasons why that is such good news is uh, many times in this life we feel like we are on our own. We really do. We're on our own. We feel like, you know, whatever my struggles are, my marriage struggles or parenting struggles or job struggles or mental health struggles or my illness struggles. I'm, I'm on my own, and if there is some God up there, he's probably looking down on me, a little ant, and really can't, <laughs> can't relate much to me. Who is this God that is with us? I want you to think of this. Think of the names of God in the Bible. Yahweh, the one who is. El Shaddai, the Almighty, El Elyon, the Most High, Adonai, the Lord, the Master, El Olam, the Everlasting God, Jehovah Jireh, there's a good song about that out there, the Lord will provide, Jeho Jehovah Sabot, the Lord of Armies, Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord of righteousness. That is the God who is with us. Amen? The, think of the images of God in the Bible. King, shepherd, warrior, rock, refuge, shield, father, maker, judge, lawgiver, comforter, savior, lion, lamb, and many other. That is the God who is with us. Amen? Think of the attributes of God in the Bible. He is living. He is powerful. He is shrewd. He is just. He is merciful. He is pure. He is honest. He is faithful. He is joyful. He is patient. He is rich. He is sovereign. He is kind. He is merciful. He is loving. That's the God who is with us. I love it how Ray Ortland Jr., one of my favorite pastors, says it. He puts it this way. He says, there's not one moment when this God's eye is off us or when he is unattentive toward us or that his heart is weary of us. There is not one moment when his care for us falters. For he hears our cry, he sees our need, he knows our sin, and he is with us in it all because he is one of us. And that's good news. Thirdly and finally, <clears throat> so part of my work as a church planter is to try and figure out the neighborhood that we live in. We're in South Scottsdale. Um, we really like South Scottsdale. It's a fantastic place. I thought, what better way to get to know the neighborhood than to substitute teach at some of the local high schools? So that's, that's what I, I jumped into. I thought, well, I'll, I'll be able to make connections with teachers and administrators, and I'll get to know students. I'll, I'll get to know Gen Z a little bit better, I, you know, all of that. 
And what I guess nobody told me is that substitute teaching is kind of like babysitting, but having no recognized authority for doing so. <laughs> and so I have all these grandiose plans of meeting teachers and principals and stuff like that. It hasn't gone that way, but, um, but I, have, I have given some more thought to the next generation, Gen Z, and, and it's taken me back to a world that I had largely forgotten. You know, I graduated high school in 1994 in Dobson and Mesa. I'd forgotten the world where you walk up to, I don't know, it's lunchtime, you walk into the cafeteria, you're, you're like, where do I sit? And you walk up to a table, there's a, maybe you're a girl and there's a group of girls there, and they're like, no, we don't want you to sit here. You, you, it's that world where when we become adults, rejection becomes much more nuanced. It's there, but it's usually more nuanced. But in high school, it's just right out in the open. It's like, no, I don't like you, and I don't want you to sit with me. <laughs> um, I'd forgotten that world. You may have too. You know, one of the hardest things we have to deal with as humans is rejection, isn't it? This, I want to be with you, but you don't want to be with me. And all of the insecurities that fosters. If you've ever gone through a divorce, I mean, oh, it's so hard. It's that I don't want to be with you. And, and you know, my theory is that the pandemic, of course the man, pandemic made us lonely. And all of the statistics out there say it's made us terribly lonely. But it's, it's, it's kind of the loneliness that's, that is manageable. Because in the pandemic, at least we wanted to be together. We just weren't able to be together because of the different rules and regulations. But the rejection of, uh, the, the loneliness of rejection is the kind of that just eats you out from the inside like you're drinking hydrochloric acid. It's, it's that loneliness of I don't want to be with you and you're not welcome. And that's the kind of stuff that kills us, kills us from the inside. The gospel we preach is that God, that God, crossed the line, and he came to us. He, he, came, he came to us. We, he didn't just come to a man. He, he became a man. He came to us. And I want to say this to you. If you're here this morning and you're new to Christianity, what you need to know fundamentally about our faith is that we, we don't believe in a faith where we're like trying to climb the ladder to get up to God and you know, please God by our behavior or, or this, that, or the other, giving money or... No, it, it's God to us. And what does it say to our sense of a rejection? He's come to us. If, if anything, the whole rejection mechanism is turned around and the primary rejection that's going on in the world is our rejection of him who's come to us. He's come to, to us. It can't be stressed enough that when God came to earth, he identified with the poor and the marginalized, with the people who have rotting teeth. He, he became a man with rotting teeth. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus had rotting teeth. Because that's what everybody in the first century had rotting teeth. He came to people who desperately needed dental work, who couldn't afford it, to people who lacked basic nutrition, to people who had parasites running through their bodies. It, it could be argued that, that Jesus had some too, because they all, they all did. They lacked basic nutrition. Their level of homelessness would make homelessness in the 21st century 
you know, pale in comparison. He came to them. He came to women who have to sell their bodies in order to make a living, to people who are mentally ill and can't string five words together in a sentence and who don't have antidepressants to take when they're, when they're wigging out. Like, he came to us, like us, us. He came to the lowest places and the lowest people. He came to the places that no one else would go. He came to the people that like we wouldn't probably go to. We certainly wouldn't go to them in that form, would we? He came to us. I'll conclude with this. Adele, uh, I am a closet Adele fan. (laughs) She released an album, uh, what, a couple weeks ago. That It's still growing on me. It's not my favorite. But one of the most emotional tracks she recorded was a song that she wrote for her six-year-old son as she was processing the pain of her divorce. So she went through a divorce a few years ago. And if you've listened to the album, you know that it included in the song is a voicemail that she left on one of her friend's phones where in her you know, wonderful Cockney accent and just tears are streaming throughout it. And you know, she's, you know, kind of, she's just crying. And she says, she says this, she says, I'm having a bad day. If I could do it in the Cockney accent, uh, I would, but I'm having a bad day. I'm having a very anxious day. I feel, I feel very paranoid. I feel very stressed. Um, I, I have a hangover, which never helps. But I feel like today is the first day since I left him that I feel lonely. And I never feel lonely. You know, I love being on my own. I always preferred being on my own than being with people. Isn't that interesting? The complexity of a, of a human being who prefers to be in solitude, yet they, you know, make their living and and they probably receive so much of their sense of identity and the acclamations of of people when they sing. But I I always preferred being on my own than being with people. And and I feel like maybe I've been like overcompensating and and being out and stuff like that to keep them off my mind. And and I feel like today I'm home and and I want to be at home. I just want to just want to watch TV and curl up in a ball and be in my sweats and stuff like that, but I just feel really lonely. I feel a bit frightened that I might feel like this a lot. I feel a bit frightened that I might feel like this a lot. What does M. Manu say to a person like that because that person could be right, any one of us here today. It says this, that when we feel the loneliness of rejection, we would know that that is not the full story. We're not fully alone. We're actually wonderfully known and we are loved. And the God who made such a grand universe is is not up there looking down on us like little ants running around on planet Earth. He, He knows what we're going through because he's experienced life's sufferings too. We sang about it a minute ago. He he came to taste life's sadness. And while that doesn't just magically erase the pain and the what we're going through, it wonderfully 
recontextualizes it. You just have to look and see, like, look at, look at the links he went to come and be with us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for the gift of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to truly know him and to experience him in this week that we might be fully transformed by him. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And God's people said, amen.